0: In today's episode, we're going to be talking about marriage and relationships. Now, if you're not in a relationship or in marriage, this doesn't mean you can just gloss over this podcast and wait for the next one. Sincerely, this will help you with any relationship that you have in your life, whether it's a a friend, an acquaintance. We're talking about the dynamics of relationships as well as our own identities and how they affect the relationship that you're in. So I can't wait for you to listen to this podcast. Hi, my name is Evan Herman, and I'm documenting my journey on becoming the best version of myself while learning how to be an entrepreneur and developing the successful habits that are necessary to get and keep me there. If you want to come alongside of me and make this journey together, we'll be listening and learning from some of the world's greatest mentors in the areas that matter most, faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, and fun. So join me on the whole person podcast. If you haven't had an opportunity yet, you can definitely check us out on the Wholepersonpodcast.com. You can find resources to grow yourself in every area of life. As we're growing, we're going to be putting our free resources up there. That's the wholepersonpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook at the Whole Person Podcast. And then in other areas, you can just follow me, Evan Herman, on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram for more information. Enjoy the show. Today, we have an amazing guest with us, Dr. Emerson Egrich. He is internationally known for public speaking on the topic of male and female relationships. So, basically, if you're in a relationship, this is a good podcast to listen to. He has had over three decades of counseling, as well as scientific Bible research. Him and his wife, Sarah, developed the course Love and Respect and the conference and the book that goes with that. And I gotta say, that conference and the book has definitely helped my relationship out with my own spouse, because we went through it a while back. So, Dr. Emerson, thank you so very much for pouring into our lives before you far even knew us. Welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Well, I'm doing well, and thank you for that introduction. That was great, Evan, thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah, so just just right off the bat, I was introduced to you back in 2000 and. 12, 13, 14, somewhere around there. I can't remember specifically when, but a church at the time that we were going to had a, a DVD conference of love and respect. And my wife and I kind of looked at each other and were like, yeah, we need to do this. We don't love and respect each other. And we're a few years into our marriage. It was extremely difficult. And so I just wanted to say from that moment it has given us tools to help each other communicate more effectively. So sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you because it has helped us. And then also, I feel a little bit like a a girl at a Backstreet Boys concert being able to interview you. I'm really (laughs) excited.
1: (laughs) I appreciate that. And I'm honored. No, it's great to know the backstory and that I had not known that I'm uh, excited to hear that testimony. And uh, we can talk about maybe some of the things that touched you in the conference and, and uh, how we can best encourage your listeners.
0: Absolutely. So feel free to ask me any question anytime throughout this, this podcast. But just to Emphasize to the listeners who don't know what we're talking about just yet. Tell us what the Love and Respect Conference is.
1: Right. Well, there are t- two uh, resources that I've used over the years. I have my doctorate in family studies, and the uh, University of of uh, Washington studied 2,000 couples for 20 years, and uh, they had them in love laboratories. They m- monitored heartbeats per minute. They were videotaping. They had linguists taking notes on word choice a very in-depth assessment. And they said, now after these two decades, we know what the two key ingredients are for a successful uh, relationship and marriage, and that's love and respect. And, uh, you know, common sense would kind of tell us that. We kind of all know, you know, yeah, there ought to be love and respect. Uh, but they really highlighted that. And not only that, though, they they got gender specific that men tend to lean during conflict toward the respect side and women tend to lean toward the love side. Though we all need love and respect equally, uh, we filter it through what I call kind of a pink and blue filter. Uh, and neither one are wrong. We're just different, as we point out. But we've asked 7,000 people this question. When you're in a conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved at that moment or disrespected? And Evan, 83% of the men said they feel disrespected, whereas 72% of the women say they feel unloved. Right. and if- of course, it raises the question are men narcissistic? There are those voices in the culture out of the feminist movement that would say, well, men are just egotistical. And yet, you and I are goodwilled men. We serve and die for honor. We don't see it as egotistical. When we honor another man, we don't see it as feeding his ego. We actually know that it softens his spirit. He actually will appreciate it and really wants to serve. You know, right. I always, when people come to my home, guys are working on a crew, whatever, I'll tip them up front. I'll give them the tip, you know, and it just has a way of honoring them uh, unconditionally. And uh, they just, whoa, talk about uh, motivation. But here's what we discovered. When a wife feels unloved, she tends to react in a way that feels disrespectful to her husband. That's not her intent. He never questions her love, usually, unless she said, I don't love you. It's almost always this feeling that you don't like who I am as a human being. I know you love me. My mother loves me but I don't think you like me. I don't think you respect who I am. I am I aim kind of think that maybe you're using this conflict as an opportunity to send me a message that you despise me. And what happens when a husband feels disrespected? He tends to react in a way that feels unloving to women. We tend to shut down, go quiet, withdraw, and you know, all those things in a woman's world, shouts, I don't love you, but that's not his intent. But then it gave birth to this, and we'll stop here with the, the crazy cycle. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, and this baby starts to spin, and I call it the crazy cycle. And couples of good will get on this. And so at our marriage conference that you asked about, Sarah and I have been trying to help couples get off of that crazy cycle. Right. And and what's interesting is the Bible addressed this 2,000 years ago in Ephesians 5.33, where there we see the instruction coming to the husband to love their wives and the wives are instructed to respect their husbands. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it's very natural for me to be unloving towards Sarah when I feel she's disrespecting me, right or wrong. And it's very natural for Sarah to be disrespectful when she feels unloved. And I think God in his wisdom has said, you know, hey, I want to just say, be cautious here. When they're stepping on your air hose and you feel deflated, make sure you don't overreact and end up robbing them of their deepest need you know i say it's so easy for me to try to motivate sarah to meet my deepest need by depriving her of her deepest need
0: right you know everything that you just said i want to dissect because you you touched on almost all the questions that we're going to i have for you and since you're talking about the crazy cycle, I want to get into, I guess, that first. We'll jump out of order here because when was it? It was Saturday morning, okay? My wife and I, apparently, we both woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And what makes this day specific, um, I like I'll probably always remember it, it was probably one of our worst fights that we've had in years. The reason why it was very critical for us that day is because we were celebrating our son's birthdays and then i also reflected it seems like every time it comes around for a birthday party her and i end up getting in a fight beforehand and then we put on a face make it through and then we dislike (laughs) each other after the fact again
1: yes (laughs) what
0: what made me I, i can't remember specifically what started it um, but it wasn't me, I promise.
1: Yeah, I know that. <laughs> we know that she's guilty. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Um, I remember I was sitting on the couch and I just realized we're on the crazy cycle and neither one of us is going to be the first one at this point to ask for forgiveness or to make amends because we're both hurt, we're both upset. And in my wanting respect, in my manliness, I wanted her to be the first one to to step up to the plate. I'm not saying my wife wouldn't have, but I wasn't going to hold my breath, not because I didn't think she would, but because I was the one that recognized it. And typically if I recognize it, that means God's calling me to do it first. Mm. And so I sat there, pouted for a few minutes, and then I realized, you know what? This tends to happen around our children's birthdays, probably because my wife you know, wants our house to be super perfect and gets really stressed. And, you know, I'm not doing enough. And it goes into this, again, this crazy cycle. Well, this time I really wasn't doing enough because I actually had knee surgery like three weeks ago. So not moving a lot. Anyway, I say all that to say, I realized that this day is important for our children. And so if I want them to have a good time, mommy and daddy have to be okay. And so, uh, I w- I walked up to her and I was like, look, we're on this crazy cycle right now. And the only way we're going to get off it and have a good rest of the day is by both acknowledging that we're wrong. And so I'm sorry, you know, I'm wrong. And then she apologizes and then she asks me to apologize again. So I apologize again. <laughs> and you know, what I learned from your conference, cause here's, here's the thing. I don't remember everything. But I remember the crazy cycle, and I remember the blue and pink headphones and, and loudspeaker. Hmm. And those were the nuggets that I took away that helped me recognize the state that we're currently in. So thank you. Hmm. And for all of you, what is the crazy cycle?
1: Well, again, that's what you experienced on that Saturday morning. Uh, and we have to decode. When, without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. And it spins, and we can either dismiss. The other is childish, you know, you ought not to feel that way. Or we can assume that our spouse has goodwill. And this is one of the points that I make. On any given day, we're going to be nasty with each other. We do get up on the wrong side of the bed. We are stubborn. We do pout. We do all these, but we're not talking about taking a snapshot of our spouse and making that the movie of their life. Right. It's important that we isolate those isolated incidences, incidences and not. Uh, extrapolate from that and say that's who you are, but see our spouse as having basic goodwill. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 33 and 34, the husband is concerned about how to please the wife. The wife is concerned about how to please the husband. And there you see very clearly there's no evil will. There's no ill will. There's no desire to be selfish per se. Neither one of you got up on the birthday Saturday with the idea that you know, actually we got up even earlier to storyboard ways to annoy each other, you know, and then got back in the bed with a plan. Hey, in a few minutes when she awakens, I'm gonna do XYZ, and she actually is saying to herself, I'm gonna do XYZ. It never goes down that way. Right. So how do we then trust that she's not trying to be disrespectful per se? But did something happen prior to it from her pink perspective that felt unloving to her?
0: Oh, absolutely. It was I wasn't doing enough. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, exactly around the house and that's right and my perspective again, it's all about perspective. I'm thinking Okay, I did a whole bunch of stuff yesterday. I'm hurting right now in my knee and I can't really walk and you're telling me I'm not doing enough. So so my sense is I'm not enough. I didn't do enough. Are you kidding? I'm hurting Mm -hmm. I'm, you -hmm. know, and i'm trying to justify justify justify
1: Yes, so Yes. Well, and one of the things that we need to be able to say as mature adults is neither one of us are wrong. We're just different. Right. And so what happens in these situations when we defend ourselves like you're naturally doing and she's wanting the her her whole motivation is pure and virtuous. She wants this to be the best day of her uh, child's uh, day. And uh, she carried this baby in her womb. I mean, this is an extension of who she is. You know, every mother identifies. I want this to be the perfect memory, building memories. And it's just it's God has hardwired women that way. So her motivation is pure. But as you just said, hey, I did all this stuff the day before, plus I had knee surgery, plus I'm in pain, and I'm thinking, you know, but so what happens though when we get to that point, we have a tendency to tell the other that they're wrong. Right. Instead of saying, Look, um, neither one of us are wrong, we're just different. I happen to believe that my idea is better than yours. What I'm feeling right now is really better, but that doesn't make your position bad. It just makes it, in my opinion, less better. Right. See, and, and as, as, as funny as that language is, that's really the perspective we've got to bring to it. Because the minute I say that my idea is better and therefore it's good, and that makes your idea bad, not less better, but it makes it in, intrinsically bad, now we're judging the individual. And once we judge them, you know, and they feel like I'm trying to do the right and righteous thing here. I'm trying to serve everybody. Both of you were. And now they suddenly the other's making, you know, the accusation that you're a horrible, horrible person. Uh, now it's going to escalate. Right. So somebody has to introduce language. Look, I'm spitting mad at you right now for that statement that I'm not doing enough. But what you're saying here is motivated by a mother's heart. I get it. I'm not trying to rob you of this precious day, I want this the best. But right now, I'm feeling like you're kind of piling on. I don't want to defend myself. How do we talk about this? And, and let's kind of come to because right now we're both in a mood to really attack each other. And uh, and, and I, I tell people you you got to be honest about your emotions, but word choice becomes very very important at that moment. Right. You know how do how do we word ourselves when we're mad? And that's where a lot of people have the skill and the knowledge to do that. And we know how to do it, but we lack the incentive to do it. If I say to a person, tomorrow you're going to get $20 million if you don't smart off to anybody who irritates you to the hill today. You know, they're going to we're going to line up 20 people who are going to annoy you as best they can, but tomorrow you get $20 million if you don't get annoyed. None of us will get annoyed. We have the skill and the knowledge how to avoid that, but we're not getting paid enough. <laughs> you see? And so I don't, when we're up the Saturday morning, we're laying there in bed, And now come these verbal, you know, hang grenades. Uh, We don't appreciate this. Plus, we feel the freedom to let our hair down because this is the person I made a vow to, you know. And uh, so we kind of just let ourselves, you know, do that. Sarah and I do. You know, Sarah chased me around the house once with my love and respect book saying, what would you say to a husband who is treating his wife the way you're treating me right now? So we all have those moments and we have to allow for them. But seeing this is the difference between you and your uh, You and other couples, you said to yourself, you know what, Um, I'm going to be stubborn here, I'm going to pout, but the one who first figures out what's going on should be the one who takes the initiative of apology, to apologize. Now that illustrates wisdom in your part, maturity in your part, but many people have that check in their spirit, but they don't want to make the first move and you are going to have a good relationship because you're willing to make the first move. The problem is, if if our spouse reacts to us in a way that feels unfair at that moment, they don't, you know, meet us halfway. Well it's about time you apologized, you creep, you jerk. Well, now we're off and run it again. Right. And can we then hold it again? So no, you're right, I, I shouldn't have gotten angry, and then trust that if you're married to a good willed person and not to Hitler's distant cousin. <laughs> if, if you're married to a good willed person, that they're probably gonna come under conviction. Right. You know but you got to wait it out long enough. You know, she smarts off to you the second time after you've apologized and you, you ate crow and you don't even have half the, the feathers down your throat. And she's still wanting to cram more crow down your throat. You, you don't have enough room with all the feathers in your mouth right now. And that's just insulting. But if you hang in there long enough, it's predictable. 15 minutes, she'll come back. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. It's almost predictable. Right. And if a wife says, you know, I dis, I dissed you. You're an honorable man. You'd die for me if I don't kill you first. <laughs> you're an honorable man. And I, you know, I, I shouldn't have not using the word unloving. And I say, to wives, don't use the word unloving. Use the word I disrespected you. If that's how he feels, apologize. And, yeah, well, you don't have one ounce of honor in your DNA, you know, pouts and wines, whatever he does. Just wait it out. The honor code is such that within 15 minutes, he'll usually come and make some gesture. He may not say, can we talk about our feelings here? And and can I formally and verbally apologize to you? But he's under the sink fixing the faucet. You know, there is a gesture. There's always a gesture. And I say to women, look for that gesture. Because in our world as men, we get it. You know, we have this flare up with our best buddy. We don't necessarily, let's talk about our feelings and can I apologize? Hey, I'm sorry. Hey, let me fix that bike for you. I mean, we get off the apology real quick and we get onto some action to demonstrate, hey, are we good to go? I'm, I, I'm bad. I'm going to make it up here. Right. So Does that makes sense? Oh,
0: total, total sense. I, I live that scenarios with whether my spouse and I or even some friends that, you know, we've annoyed each other at one point in time. And I think you're hitting the the resonated heartstrings because you have to recognize that you are married to a goodwill person and recognizing that there's qualities and traits and things in your spouse that were attractive to you to to begin with, and not letting the negative self-lying talk in your brain Mm -hmm. over that specific action that just happened distort the real person that your spouse is. And I think that's
1: well said. where we get that's deceived. Well,
0: well, thank you. I appreciate that. No,
1: keep, I mean, keep on that point. I didn't want to interrupt you no. by saying.
0: Well, yeah. I, I think I was just landing pretty quick, so I didn't have much more <laughs> to
1: say. Yeah, but I think, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, coming to that point where we make a decision, is my spouse basically goodwilled? And even though uh, right now, they're being nasty because we know how to be nasty with each other. Right. We, we're going to be nasty with each other in a way that we're not going to be nasty with anybody else outside of the home, and we have to allow for that a little bit because it it really is a compliment that they feel the freedom to be totally themselves, nothing you know, held back. The problem, of course, is um, you know sometimes they have daggers in both their hands and they're stabbing our eyes, saying, "Look at me, look at me, look at me. right." <laughs> you know, you know,
0: it's funny that you you say daggers because. I have this idea or phrase, and I've never really shared it, but at different times, and it's not my wife all the time, sometimes it's me, but sometimes as a hurt person, what it feels like is, let's say I'm the hurt person, and I need the comfort of my own spouse, but because I'm hurt, I have this dagger sticking out in front of me, and the only way my spouse is going to be able to come close and comfort me is allowing them to be ran through with that dagger.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. In
0: my own marriage, I've realized there's been different times where my wife and I have both allowed ourselves, knowing that we're going to get her approaching the other spouse, but walking in grace, trying to help each other. And at that moment, and even when we go back to that moment I had on the couch realizing, hey, I need to apologize first. What what I've realized, and when we first got married, this wasn't a popular saying with my wife because we had a very difficult first three years because she'd be like, why do you love me? And I could not think of one reason why I liked her (laughs) at that moment. And when she would ask me, why do you love me? I looked at her and God's honest truth is I said, because I choose to, that's it. I choose to. And even though the emotions and the ooey gooeyness is gone out of that, my wife has also come around to that perspective too because there's times where she just doesn't like me and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But we have committed to each other to choose to want to love each other, even in the midst of our ugliness. And I think that's important to realize because love is a choice. So here's here's a great, great example. Um, someone once asked me, what is the opposite of love? Well, immediately I said, hate. And they said, no, no, love is an action. And so is hate. The opposite of an action is an inaction. So the opposite of love is neglect. And I I mean, that was in a missions class and my jaw dropped. And, you know, when I apply that same principle in my marriage, I have to choose a proactive action to show my wife love. Mm-hmm. So I choose to love her, and then I have to back that up with an action, which is going back mm-hmm. to what you were saying. So, Dr. Mm-hmm. Emerson, why did you choose counseling?
1: Well, because of all my personal issues. Are you talking about getting counseling or offering counseling?
0: Uh- <laughs> no, why yeah, did you choose no. to, to become yeah, a counselor?
1: No, I was joking. Well, I uh, went into the ministry. So it's, uh, pastorally, that has been uh, part of my you know, calling. And uh, I came to Christ at age 16 uh, through a Billy Graham film called For Pete's Sake. I was at a military school uh, from eighth grade to 12th grade Missouri Military Academy because our family had, we were not Christ followers. So we had difficulties in the family. I Basically, I went to military school. My freshman year, Wheaton, when I came to Christ, I decided to go to because Billy Graham had gone there, and uh, didn't know anything too much about things. But my freshman year, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother-in-law, who's a professor, all received Christ into their life, and so our family changed. But I think uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was one. Then they remarried each other, but then they separated. My dad attempted at those early years to attempted to strangle my mother to death on one occasion. Um, that I think led to why she separated for five years. But then they reconciled and uh you know the trauma of all of that and then coming to christ later on so healing took place but i think you know those um experiences create a woundedness create a uh a natural bent toward you know if you see things that you experienced as a young person you see it replicated you you kind of you you had that wincing kind of feeling and so i think you know the desire to Provide insight to people that they don't have to go through some of those things my mom and dad went through I think there's kind of a unspoken vision to um, Make a difference if I could say things to people that I I think I would have hoped had been said to my mom and dad You know, um, so I think that's the backstory from an, an emotional perspective um But pastorally, people were just coming to me for counsel. And after a while, you begin to see patterns, you see things, the research. And um, I also chose not to write anything until I was 50. And so I made a commitment to thinking and praying and uh, studying for uh, 25 years. I studied the Bible 30 hours a week for nearly 20 years as a senior pastor of Trinity Church in East Lansing, a college town where Michigan State University is with 45,000 students. So a college-town pastor studying all that time and, uh, and then had this illumination at a certain point in 1998, right about then, uh, suddenly saw all of these uh, cycles that we talk about in Love and Respect book. And it just seemed to be so simple. It just seemed to be so helpful. And that's when we decided that we needed to launch and get this message out as far as we could take it.
0: That's awesome. You know, when it comes... To ministry, there are a lot of good pastors that have sound marital advice, and not just pastors. I remember my wife and I, we went through marital counseling at my college, which is Oral Roberts University and their counseling center. And the person they paired us up with was someone who had just been married nine months, who whose degree was in trauma counseling. I mean, that's all we could afford was what was free and provided by our college. It was the worst counseling I think I had ever gone through because they were, she kept trying to pull out traumatic events. And my <laughs> wife and I, or my fiance, Karina, at the time, who's now my wife, were just, you know, we thought we were good after 10 sessions. And I kid you not, as soon as we got back from the honeymoon, the honeymoon was over. And, you know, she had more hurt in her life than I realized or that I knew how to connect with her, um, cause we didn't live with one another beforehand. And so I thought she was an entirely different person than who I, who, who I was dating and she felt the same way about me. You know, I was more controlling than, than I anticipated. I was more critical than, than she anticipated and, you know, those are negative traits about myself that because of my marriage, I learned that I had and have had to work on because you know, I wanted to stay married. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what advice would you give someone who who's struggling in their marriage and is deciding whether to or not to get counseling and then how to go about it?
1: Well, I think first in the response to what you're saying – uh, we have to, and I think we have an unrealistic view of what, what is entailed in relationships. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, if you marry, you've not sinned, but you will have trouble. Right. Now, if we live by the Hollywood perspective rather than the Hollywood, Holy Word perspective, we're going to enter a marriage with some very unrealistic expectations. God is very clear that you don't have to live together in order to discover the fact that you're going to have trouble. Uh, the, the, so the idea is, how do we prepare for a relationship where we're going to have a basic love and respect for each other, but it's just a matter of time before we come across to each other in a way that really hurts each other? And when that happens, how do we solve that? And this is where the challenge has to be extended. The culture says live together to find out if the the, the uh, if, if we can get along, or whatever. Well, if you step back, no two people are going to get along. right? And the answer here is learning what skills and knowledge do I have to have in place for that first major marital conflict? How do people who have been living together for 40 years deal with that? Uh, and so the challenge that I extend is, look, uh, uh, we need to be passionate. We need to have the song of solemn perspective, but we also need to recognize we might give birth to a child that in 18 months is going to be dead from cancer. And you're not gonna go to, to Hawaii on a honeymoon. Each of us has to then include in our view of marriage a potential challenge. In fact, I'm writing a book right now that deals with what I see are the five major challenges that come to and frustrations to couples. We have honest misunderstandings. We have honest disagreements. We have honest disappointments. We have honest insecurities. And then we have unexpected misfortunes. Mm -hmm. And if we recognize this, there are ways of dealing with each of those that can actually be quite positive. But we have to deal with those rather than suddenly be in shock that, hey, we are, uh, you you know, it's it's so easy to say that you are controlling, that you are critical. It's so easy to say she's this, she's that. Well, what would make us think that's not going to happen? It just depends on the situation where we have an honest differences of opinion. And is the person being controlling? Or are they just being, I think I'm right. And I'm not trying to be controlling. I just think I'm right. And how do we tease this out as we talked uh, before? How do we concede to the merit of their position? And we concede to our own. Healthy self-interest isn't wrong. And how do we we negotiate? Paul said, if you marry, have not sinned, you're going to have... Trouble, well, what trouble is he referring to? You go back to verse four, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Paul is clearly saying, when it comes to sexual and emotional intimacy, you have equal say about whether you're going to have sex on Tuesday night. So there's going to be trouble. Who makes that decision? God himself has said, you have equal authority in the sexual, emotional intimacy area. Well, if you have equal authority and you have commensurate responsibility, who, who makes the decision? And the answer is yes. Right. And one thing I say to people, they think they're outside of God's will during conflict on Tuesday night. The truth is you're in the center of his will. So what is it that the Lord's doing? Is he a cosmic killjoy out to ruin our party? Or is he a loving father who is saying, don't be surprised by these moments? And the key is to learn then how to deal with it. Like you wisely did, you realize the Lord spoke to my heart. You know what? If it comes to me first, then I need to take the initiative. If you're you're like all of us, I don't I feel that's unfair. I don't want to do that. But a mature person says, Well, here we are. I shouldn't be surprised by this. Some have more conflict, some have less, but we're probably all within a certain range. You know, the best of relationships have conflict. So the challenge is not to be in freak out but instead do exactly what I see you doing. I mean, I just, that's the call. It takes a little bit of discipline, but it works. It just works. Your Mm -hmm. wisdom in what you did just works. Now, if we say to ourselves, well, I don't want this to happen in the first place. And I resent my spouse subjected me to this kind of trouble and conflict. And I'm going to be bitter toward them the rest of my life. Okay. But a, a person like Evan says, you know, I could go that way. I could say it's so unfair that we get up on the wrong side of the bed, that she has all these unrealistic expectations every birthday. She's very unfair to me. I had surgery. I'm almost dying here. And she expects me to crawl across glass. You know, we can frame it, but we can say, you know what? I call it the 80-20 rule or 80-20 ratio. 20% of a great friendship is going to have tension. It's going to have moments where it's very tough. But I think, you know, I, I'll stop right there and let you ask a question. Um, your maturity and the way you dealt with that, I think, is a great example to your listeners. It's not fair, but life's not fair. And it's called the 80-20. 20% is not going to be fair. So are you going to shake your fist and then, you know, end up poisoning the other 80% because you got this attitude for the next three days? Right. The threefer.
0: Right. You know, and, and just to put this in perspective, too, my wife has had those moments for our listeners. I don't want to make my wife sound like she's the issue in our marriage. The, the reality of the situation is there's enough issues in our marriage for both of us to take blame.
1: <laughs> yes, um, yes. And I didn't see her. I, right. I see it as a healthy expectation, birthday day. Uh, that is virtuous, right. as we said, <laughs> virtuous. These conflicts quite often come because we're both trying to do the right thing and it just kind of, blows up in our face and that's what insults us and that's what hurts us
0: you know you were saying a scripture um, that paul wrote about that there'll be trouble in marriage and i don't know why but my this verse propped into my mind it's proverbs 14 4 and it says where there are no oxen the manger is clean but abundant crops come from the strength of the ox and i think why i like that so much is because literally if there's no oxen in the cave, uh, stable, then you're not going to have poo in it. But if as marriage, if you have oxen, if you're married, then there's going to be crap that hits the fan every once in a while. And it just goes to show us that uh, it's going to happen. And we just have to clean it up and deal with it. Or like you said, we can just, you know, go slaughter the ox, (laughs)
1: Yes. Well, and and I think even in Sarah and my relationship, you know, there are many times I say, you know, if I was really like Jesus Christ, I would not be annoyed or irritated. Right. <laughs> it's an ongoing um, opportunity for me to realize, you know, if I really uh, was like Christ, would I be provoked in a, in a sinful way, even if my spouse was wrong? So do I want to put the onus on me that, you know, is the Lord using the iron, the Proverbs iron sharpens iron, so each brother sharpens another? Do I see that God is seeking to use my spouse in my life to develop my own character, and and but is, to your point, stuff happens, and but what happens to the point I was trying to make earlier, it feels unfair. Some of us come to a point where we have the sense you know, we're mad at God, we're mad at our spouse, we're mad at the world. This shouldn't be happening to me. We don't roll with it. Um, you know, I, one of the analogies I give is that verse First Corinthians seven twenty-eight: If you marry, have not sinned. You'll have trouble. Some people don't want that trouble. They have this. Ninety-nine percent expectation of what the relationship should be like, perfect, and then it's this eighty percent. So that nineteen percent difference, it, it, what it does, it disillusion[s] them, it embitters them, and then the little leaven leavens the whole and poisons the whole thing. Now life is miserable simply because they don't know how to deal with that momentary conflict. They resent that that's happening to them, right. and it's comparable to me. You know, here we hear the news. Um, today, on a major um, uh, aircraft carrier, um, uh, 300 sailors jumped ship. And the commentator said, well, why did they jump ship? Well, they had a storm in the open sea. So the sailors jumped ship because of the storm? Yeah, they didn't sign up for storms on the open sea. Well, everybody who knows anything about the open sea knows if you're on the open sea, you're going to go through a storm. So what What was the expectation of the sailor to be on this This Aircraft carrier without ever being in a storm, so they jump ship. And I, by way of analogy, like the heavenly host announced today 300 husbands and wives jump ship on their marriage. Well, why? Oh, the troubles. Right. The storms. And we think to ourselves, whoa, didn't the Lord tell us that if you join the Navy or, you know, so to speak, didn't the government tell if you join the Navy, you're going to have storms? And if it did not, the Lord tell us that if you get married, you're going to have these troubles, learn to roll with it. Why are some people successful in marriages? Many people think they're successful because they don't have troubles. No, all the research points out that people who succeed in their marriage know how to deal with those troubles. And that's why they're happy. Right. We think if I can eliminate all of my problems, I'll be happy. Mature people come to a point where I, I, I'll roll with this. I'm not going to jump ship on this. I don't like this moment not enjoying this moment, but it's temporary, not going to last forever. And uh, if I'm a mature person, I can take the initiative and get us off the crazy cycle.
0: Right. I remember you did that. I remember it was 2013. And you know, my wife and I were still experiencing conflict in our marriage. And it was like the first three years we got married in May 8th, 2010. And you honest to God, I just didn't know if our marriage was ever going to make it. Um, Mm. But we had this commitment to God individually. Mm -hmm. And we put such a reverence on the identity of marriage that that's what kept us in the marriage versus um, our love for one another, because there wasn't much love. Mm -hmm. We wanted Mm -hmm. there to be, but we were just at, at war with one another, what it felt like a lot. And and I'm I'm saying that not because we hated each other, that she's a bad person, that I'm a bad person. It's because we didn't know how to deal with a conflict. We weren't Mm -hmm. equipped. Mm -hmm. And then there was this major, sorry, I might, there was this major life event that happened. My wife got pregnant with our first child. And we were excited. And then I'm thinking, all right, you know, we have a child now and regardless of my marriage, I'm staying around. Then we lose our child. Oh. And we were halfway through the pregnancy. And she was a premature stillborn. Um, several things happen. I mean, I have a whole other side story of what God did in my heart that day. Mm-hmm couple of things. The hardest pain, the worst feeling I've ever had in my life wasn't just the death of my daughter, but it was when I had to hand her body to the nurse for the very last Mm -hmm. time. That moment was the most painful moment of my life. Mm -hmm. And so with perspective now, my marriage wasn't the worst pain in my life. This was. And then we, we get out of the hospital Um, At that point, we were living with my in-laws because we moved across country um, to go try to help plant a church. That didn't go well. So we ended up moving back and our house was rented out. And we were just in this large state of chaos. And when we lost our daughter, there was this moment of, I felt like clarity where I felt like I had this choice. Either this is going to make us stronger or this is going to be the nail in the coffin. And I wasn't for sure how to handle that, but I knew that this lady who I loved and married was really hurting. Hmm. And she knew that this guy that she loved was really hurting. And we were there for one another in our hurt. We mm-hmm. didn't point blame at one another. We we didn't point blame at God. We weren't bitter at Him. We weren't angry at God. And that loss brought us closer together. And And I say what I'm about to say. I don't believe for one second that we lost our daughter so it would heal our marriage. I want to put mm-hmm. emphasis on that. I believe that mm-hmm. my daughter's life was taken prematurely. Mm-hmm. But the net result is out of out of tragic stuff, it drew my wife closer and I together because at that moment we had to learn how to love one another in a way that, that we just, I don't know. We knew how before. Mm -hmm. And because of it, we had a lot more grace for one another. And I think that was the major key is that there was so much more grace extended to each other. And then shortly after that, God just was working on our own hearts individually to heal Other from the loss, and it brought so many issues up in my life that I had to deal with, and then so many issues up in her life that she had to deal with. That at that moment, we both were seeking God probably more than we had in the previous three years. That by seeking God, our marriage got stronger and closer together.
1: So, no, I mean, that's just an outstanding uh testimony, and so encouraging for the people who are listening because this, um. Is the crossroads that all of us come to as we talked about those five things, you know, the mis- misunderstandings, the disagreements, the disappointments, the insecurities, and all those are honest. But then I have that last one, the unexpected misfortunes. And so here you lose this precious little girl. And, you know, is it, are we going to respond like Job or Job's wife? Job's wife said, curse God and die. Right. You know, they're they and all of us come to the point. Or were we not sin with our lips? And this is part of that overarching perspective. Are we going to come into a relationship with a realistic view that uh, none of us are going to get out of this world alive? Um, the hope is that we will have children that are healthy, that everything is going to go wonderful. But what if it doesn't? Are we going to shake our fist at heaven? Are we going to, or are we going to somehow trust that? though there are, are unanswered questions. So I always say there's this box with a question mark in it. And the Lord is not gonna answer that. Just as Jesus was on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think in the incarnation in the humanity, he surrendered certain uh, divine rights and that was one to be omniscient. He didn't, uh, he chose to let go of all knowing. He could kick into it, so to speak, when he wanted to. But I think this came at him sideways. I don't think he understood fully what hit him. And, uh, and, and so too, that then serves as an example to all of us that there are these moments, what, what, how are we going to deal with that unanswered question? Why? When this thing comes out of nowhere and it's unexpected, it's undeserved, it's, it's not fair. You and your wife made a decision. We're at this crossroads. We're either going to just let this create bitterness and anger, take it all out on each other, or we're going to come up with some kind of perspective. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to say that we have this dagger that we're holding on to. And as you come close to me, it's going to stick in your chest. But please keep coming toward me because I'm hurting and hurt people hurt. But please give me grace. You created some kind of a verbal framework that allowed you both to uh, comfort each other in the midst of these moments. And uh, that's just what I call wisdom. When I did my daughter's wedding, you know, I. People are looking for mr. Perfect miss miss perfect and and rather than thinking about how to be mr Perfect or mister, you know I'm looking for mr. Right rather than thinking about being mr Right, and I said to my daughter who got married a little bit at an older age in her early 30s um, And her husband was a couple of years older. They both committed to be mature first and foremost and then secondly find someone who is mature and then thirdly to commit themselves to a ministry mission that was beyond their relationship and you and your wife you know had this crazy cycle experience but you both brought to this a maturity and that you made a decision to be a mature one and as you marched forward you continue to make what I see as wise choices and this is where everybody listening realizes look this is painful especially when you lose a daughter That's one issue in and of itself, not to suggest the Saturday morning episode with her expectations of the birthday day and your wounded knee. I mean, these are uh, very pale in comparison, but nonetheless real. And are we going to bring to this, hey, you know what, The stuff happens. And some things are even beyond just the uh, ox, you know, illustration you gave. This is the loss of a human being. And how do we deal with this as a husband and wife when we're going to, uh, have that pain until we die ourselves? It's just not going to go away. Right. But, uh, I just want to applaud you and your wife for, you know, uh, demonstrating, uh, how to deal with those moments that are totally unfair. Mm.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. It, uh, There's so much to that story and someday I'll get into it for our listeners, but there's, yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for sharing it, Evan. I mean, that's just very, very meaningful to hear and I appreciate your willingness to be transparent. Thank you.
0: You know, before we end, I have three questions that I ask every one of our guests and one of the things that, um, I'm, you can either answer this in the context of your life or the way you see um, marital couples think about this. So frame it however you want. What's the biggest lie in self-talk that you had or currently struggle with?
1: Well, trailing on what you were saying, I love the way you said that we have this distorted view. We we And you've got to kind of just remind yourself of your spouse or even yourself. Uh, uh, I think in my case, you know, coming to that point where was I going to believe what God said about me or was I going to believe about myself what I was feeling within myself, you know, coming out of a non-Christian home, how do you come to that point where you believe that God loves you and isn't going to slap you from heaven, you know, because you sense that you deserve to be slapped and and coming to that point where you really trust his love. I can remember being a new believer, sitting in a New Testament class at Wheaton under Dr. Gordon Fee, and he was talking about the forgiveness of Christ and the individual who came, Lord, I've sinned again. I've sinned again. Will you forgive me again? And Gordon Fee in this way of drama said, imitating the Lord again. I don't I don't think I remember the last time. <laughs> and I, it's not that God forgets in that sense, but it, he was capturing the idea that the Lord forgives and uh, part of that forgiveness is, you know, is part of his love for us. And I can remember sitting in that class thinking, does the Lord really feel about me this way? Does he really view me this way? And I remember Evan Welsh, who was the chaplain of Wheaton, one of the most godly loving men. And I was struggling with the love of God. And Evan Welsh had done so many things toward me that were, I would never experienced at military school for five years. And he loved me so deeply and profoundly and even wept at times as he would say things to me and his burden for me. And one night the Lord said, if Evan Welsh, a mere man can love you that much, would I love you less? Mm. And it really spoke to me in a very deep way. But I think this issue of self-talk and um, the inner script and coming to a point where I'm going to trust scripture, what it says about me, what God says about me, and not my inner script based on the voices or the mental committee that is in my head.
0: Right. What brings you peace?
1: Well, I think the, and I've said this through the years that there has to be this abiding in Christ and we have to come to a point of just being content and peaceful within him. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world do I give, but my peace, not as the world gives, but my peace I give to you. Paul said, the peace that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I believe Christ is there and I believe he's present. I believe he indwells me. And I've said to a lot of young people uh, through the years, don't get ahead of God. If you suddenly beginning to lose the sense of peace because you're goal oriented and you're going after it, and you begin to lose that peace, you're going to get in some deep doo doo. <laughs> you're going to get in trouble. So you've got to just set enough to realize, you know, uh, that uh, if I sense that I'm losing my peace, see, I, I was voted most likely to succeed, so I'm a very aggressive individual, and then I come to Christ, right, out of high school and military school and all the goal. And the Lord just spoke to me, don't get ahead, don't get out over your skis. And, and so for me, that came a moment some people are initiators, some people are responders. And if you're in that initiating camp where you can make things happen, then waiting on God in this case is very important. Other people who are more phlegmatic, need to step out on the water. But others of us who are go-getters need to wait upon God. And that becomes a feeling of irresponsibility. But one of the measures of that is this inner peace. And if we just know that I'm getting irritated, I'm getting mad, I'm, I'm, you're, then you're hustle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's time. I, I remember I came into Wheaton. I was elected freshman class president immediately. Here I am again now. I'm in Christ two years and I'm off and running again. And the Lord spoke to me, you know what? Stop. So I went to the farthest end of campus, got a single room and just stopped because I was only 18 months in Christ. I didn't know about this stuff. So the Lord just said, stop, wait upon me wait upon me, you know, don't, don't get ahead of me. And uh, w- what was the, the basis for that? I didn't have peace. Mm. I knew it in my heart. I was getting out over the skis, as we say.
0: You know, I'm going to add something. Normally I wouldn't, but, but um, go ahead. so yesterday I was at church and, you know, there's this altar call to, to come up and I was you know, at the very back. And I'm like, "Ah, do I go up? You know, it's a long walk downhill (laughs) and I'm on a cane. But I went up, got prayed for, great, okay. Um, And it was more about finding peace and and relief. But when I sat down, I felt like God, like just spoke into my heart and I didn't know what to do with what I felt like he said until you brought it up. So I'm just going to read it. And it's that there are people with a feeling of greatness inside them but they feel like they're not walking in that greatness, that they feel like they keep coming up short and a feeling of inadequacy and not enough, which makes this feeling of greatness inside them hurt and unattainable. The word is this, that we have misplaced the identity of greatness on the inside of us, which is the results that we see in our own life. But the greatness is not the results we produce the greatness that we feel in us is the greatness of jesus christ in us in the fruit that gets produced out of a walk in relationship with him what we long to see come out of time spent with him when we move this identity of greatness from results we have to reach to it being the person of jesus in us there is a freedom of knowing that the fruit we long comes out out of our connectedness with jesus and that is something that we do not have to do on our own and that something can bring us peace
1: now did you write that
0: yeah I, i felt like god spoke that to me yesterday at church
1: oh you just wrote that yesterday yeah send that to me because i want to quote you on that because again that captures exactly uh the the point I mean, the kingdom is upside down. And um, uh, the idea that the world would say, you know, hey, here's what it means to be a success. But the Lord, the kingdom is upside down. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The humble shall be exalted. Those who exalt themselves shall be humbled. But uh, there's a verse that Paul, who we know is this incredible figure, but he writes to the Corinthians, um, unknown but known. Mm. About himself, I'm unknown, and at that time he was unknown. We and and as far as he know, he would always be kind of unknown. I mean, he wasn't eloquent. Barnabas was an even better speaker. So Paul was saying, "I'm not really known, um, but I'm known by God." Right. And being known by Him and knowing Him to know Him and to be known by Him. And coming to that point where we don't have a worldly perspective on what fruitfulness is. Success is one thing that you measure by uh, the amount of money you make or whatever. We have markers. And then we think if we're doing something along the line that brings monetary value, that it must be making a contribution to people's lives. Otherwise, they wouldn't invest it in it. There's a merit uh, element of truth in that, that. That has merit to it. But if that becomes then the criteria... Then, you know, how do we explain those in Hebrews who were butchered and (laughs) eaten by lions and and, uh, Jesus himself getting nailed to the cross? So what is the deeper thing that really touches the heart of God? What is it that really matters to God? I wrote a book called The Four Wills of God. There are four passages that say this is the will of God and identifies it with a specific behavior. And I make the point there's more to the will of God than these four. But if we follow these four, then we are in the center of his will. And we're bringing him pleasure. And in bringing him pleasure, we should be able to derive pleasure. And that thereby we have peace and contentment. And we have to go back. And that's why what you said was so profound, that we've got to come to grips with where's our identity. And will I bring my identity in Christ to what I'm doing? Or do I derive my identity from what I'm doing? And that subtly there is a significant difference that I'm going to bring my identity to Christ this podcast i'm not going to derive my identity that somehow evan has 10 million downloads and now he's he's a good boy you know no uh you, if there aren't that many is christ pleased with you and how do we come to that point where we have confidence that the lord is pleased with us and we never want to be presumptuous about that but if we center on that uh just as you profoundly wrote. I mean wow you're you're going to you're going to keep the demons at bay cuz they will speak to your mind about your inadequacies about you're not you're not making a difference you're insignificant i mean all of those lies that come to us
0: right so before you go you've written a couple of books you just talked about one you also have a book called love and respect as well as a conference tell us some of the works that you've done and where people can find them and then also you know, plug your podcast. Cause I, I mean, I want to add value to, to you through this.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Uh, loveandrespect.com, dot L-O-V-E-A-N-D-R-E-S-P-E-C-T. <laughs> com. Love and respect all spelled out and they can see all the resources we have there. In fact, my son, Jonathan is a clinical psychologist, love and respect uh, counseling. And uh, he, he uh, came to me a couple years ago and said, Hey dad, let's do a podcast together. And I said, well, fine. He's more of an introvert clinical psychologist. He's more quiet. I said, well, yeah, isn't it going to be a little intimidating for you? He said, no, actually, they can't see my face. So I said, let's do it. So we made 125 and we have about 3 million downloads now. And so that's free information, uh, the Love and Respect podcast that addresses some of these issues that we've been talking about today. But I definitely would like, Evan, your story there. I don't know if you can clip that out and i can have that transcribed about what you and your wife went through and if you give me permission to uh that's a great great testimony uh and just illustrates just to your listeners well that they how are we going to deal with these potentially unexpected misfortunes and evan has certainly demonstrated he and his wife have shown us how to step through that kind of loss. So, thank you. You
0: bet. And yeah, I'll go ahead and once I start editing this, I'll, I'll send you that clip. Okay. So, well, right. thank you so much for coming on today.
1: God bless you, Evan. Take thank care. you.
0: I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you would, I'd greatly appreciate you subscribing as well as rating and even leaving us an objective review. It helps us with our ratings and spreading the message of the whole person podcast. And now, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Thank you guys so much for listening today. Take care and God bless. I created a free resource that I wanna offer all of our listeners. You know, we have this ideal person of what we want ourselves to look like. And there's this gap between where we currently are in that dream identity that we've created? Well, in this resource, it shares ideas and components about how to not only bridge some of those gaps, but also how to be content and okay with who we are as we love ourselves in the process of change. If that interests you and you want that resource, check out the wholepersonpodcast.com. Again, that's the wholepersonpodcast.com for that free resource. And while you're there, just so you know, our friends at Anchor Marketing actually created our website that helps us market ourselves better and brand ourselves. It also works with search engine optimization and other areas for digital marketing. So definitely check them out. We paid them to build our website and to help us do marketing, and we just really appreciate them. I figured as a business owner or entrepreneur, if that's something that you're looking for, you should definitely go check them out. I think their website is anchormarketingco.com. That's anchormarketingco.com.